Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Pack filler. Pack filler. I'm Pat Bolger. I'm Mark Hudson. Pack filler. Welcome to another episode of the Pack Filler Podcast, home to every bad or dumb ass who's ever straddled a top tube. You can be a part of the show on Facebook, Twitter, or dumb old email at info at packfiller.com. Listen while working, training, or just sitting and sipping a cold one. And now your hosts, Pat Bulger and Mark Hodgson. of the Pack Filler Podcast. I'm Pat Bulger. Nah, who am I kidding? You guys are going to figure it out by now. Whenever there's a guest, Mark always has something going on. Either I just don't want to screw up the interview because, you know, he's going to pull all this legal jargon all over the place. In the PackFiller.com studios, I'm Pat Bulger. Mark Hodgson has probably something going on in his life that he's going to claim as an excuse for reference in the next podcast. Tonight... We have a very good episode, a very interesting episode of the Pactular Podcast for you because, you know, we always tend to wax sentimental, Mark and I do, but you know what? We are just babies in the world of cycling and where the sport come from and where it is going and to be able to gain that perspective and what's going on with the sport, you really have to understand where it has been and there is no better place to go than some of the pioneers of the sport, especially for this sport in the United States. 
And uh, tonight, fortunately, on the show, I was able to catch up with Bill Humphreys, um, a guy who's done just about everything within the sport, can easily be considered one of the pioneers of American cycling. The Jersey Project is his book. If you have not seen it yet, if you not have an opportunity to pick it up, I'm not whoring myself out here, boys and girls. This is something if you're a diehard cyclist and you listen to this show, you're going to want your coffee table. I had the opportunity to catch up with Bill and see what his perspective is on the sport, where it has been, where it's going, and where it should be. And it was a really great interview. I'm not going to bust his chops too much because he's really excited, and when he taps on the table, he tends to get excited. But it is a great interview. Bill is a really dynamic guy, and he has forgotten more about the sport than most people will ever remember. So without further ado, I'm going to let it all go. Bill Humphreys on the Pat Filler Podcast. All right, otherwise known as the Bike Guy, Bill Humphreys is the president of Bike Guy LLC, sports marketing, event management, and consulting company. Wow, that's a lot. Specializing in all aspects of cycling. He's tabbed the Bike Guy mainly because of his competing days in his first stage race. The And he's going to have to correct me if I pronounce this wrong. Uh, the Tour de l'Est in Quebec, Canada. He went on to pioneer modern-day team position of domestique in the Raleigh CRC of A, which stands for Century Road Club of America, and the U.S. National Road Teams. Competed in the Tour of Ireland, the Worlds, and several other top-level events pioneering the sport as a member of Raleigh CRC of A. And as a U.S. national team road coach in Swan Europe, he would take teams to Europe, Latin America, all over the place, help develop the U.S. into the staple that has become the U.S. and the world cycling scene. He has developed contacts to the highest levels of international cycling and in the process became a, a consultant for multiple nutrition companies regarding recognition and team contracts. Accelerate, Vital Nutrients, Acid Zapper, Boy, just a few of those. Recently, he launched his first book, The Jersey Project, which is truly, truly a unique book on cycling jerseys and an incredible take on the history of cycling. I'm hearing my own voice back, but that's okay. Let's welcome Bill Humphreys to the show. How are you, Bill? Hello. How are you? Good to hear from you. You bet. Thanks for coming on. Hey, let's start with a bit of perspective. How did you find yourself into the sport of cycling how did this all get going oh man that is a loaded question man <laughs> the bottom line is uh i got too many speeding tickets with my red austin healy while living in san diego <laughs> <laughs> and uh i just felt like it was you know i just felt like it was important to keep that license it was like um an important id to have in your wallet you know absolutely so, so I uh, sold Ely and bought a bike, and when I came back to see the judge in two weeks, I showed him the uh, bike receipt and the sale of the Healy, and uh, and I, you know, I didn't have a car for like five years, but I ended up seeing the world anyway. Oh, man. What a, what a, what an interesting story to start that out with. Hey, um, you know, for those of you, us new to the sport, how would you describe, and uh, I don't want to you know, date you or anything like that, but how would you describe ah. the scene when you started out in cycling? What was cycling like in the United States on your genesis in the sport? Well, you know, it, it, it had its peaks and valleys even back then, and uh, it, was, it was tiny. I mean, I think there was like 12,000 registered licensed racers in the United States. God. And I think there's like sixty or seventy or eighty thousand now. Um, 
but um, if you saw someone rolling down the road uh, with their black wool tights on and their white, white socks and black shoes, I mean, there's a good chance you knew who it was. You know what I mean? You're talking straight to my heart here with that kind of stuff. The, the wool tights and the white socks, that's how it should still be in my opinion. But uh, take us through the creation of, of, of Raleigh Century Road Club. What was that club like? Was that the first where did that grow from, and were you involved in its inception? Well, you know, no, that's, that's, that is the oldest cycling club in the United States, and it was based out of uh, essentially the oldest bike shop, uh, Cop Cyclery, in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, I tried to learn how to race on the West Coast. I was living in San Diego when I got and you know, I was having too much fun with the Healy and... Um, <laughs> And uh, I started riding the bike to work. I was a laborer. I uh, was riding it just for uh, recreation to get out of the beach, which was pretty crowded and noisy. And uh, one thing led to another, but I couldn't learn the racing sport. I mean, I, I was good as a novice. They had novice class A, B, and C. That was it. And uh, I was strong, but I was a long-haired hippie, and I had some extra weight on me and hairy legs, and the, and the racers, you know, they didn't want anything to do with me. <laughs> so was this a growth thing where did you how did you become to that level of being competitive on that team well you know it's a pretty unique story in that i i, I raced for a couple of years there a couple of spring times and i just said this is horrible I, I can't i'm getting dropped uh so i got on my bike with another buddy and we rode across the united states <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know it was the two of us and uh you know, we were doing over 100 miles a day and carrying our pannier bags. And 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 at one point, you know, I just kept thinking, you know, if, if we don't get killed out here, I'm going to be a good bike racer. You know, when I get all the way across the country, I'm going to have to be a good bike racer because I'm riding, you know, 100 miles a day. And that was just a reinforcing uh, thought that was going through my mind. I got to the East Coast. Uh, it's a long story, but I kept a training diary on a little on a, on a on a little index pad, um, and I just wrote my notes down every day. And I said, "I'm you know today I covered this much distance. I almost got run off the road this many times. I had this many flat tires. I broke this many spokes, you know." And all of a sudden, I found myself in Quebec City, and I realized you've ridden so far that they're speaking a different language. <laughs> So where does this end up all of a sudden leading to your career, taking you to the tour of Ireland? Okay. All right. So, so, uh, I will wrap this up. I, no, I, I, I got I to the it. East coast. I raced a couple times, uh, and I did well. And then the winter came and I spent the, I spent the winter being a ski bum in Sugarbush, Vermont. And all I kept thinking, all I was doing was spend my money. I'm going to Belgium. <laughs> you know, I cross country skied. I waited tables. I saved my money. I bought my plane ticket. I my parents lived in Connecticut. This is a crucial decision. I moved down to Connecticut. I'm getting on Icelandic Airlines and JFK like the next day, and somewhere along the line, I had joined the Century Road Club of America. I had met some guys, and I was at my parents' house. I'm leaving for Europe now. I'm going to Europe with no racing experience, an oversized Raleigh professional, one set of wheels. And I really don't even have a place to stay, but I have my ticket and I'm going. I mean, this is a disaster ready to happen. So it's it's like early March, or it's like March 15th or so. It's about this time of the year. And I 
this this membership card comes in the mail to my parents' house, and I look at it, and the president of the club is Dave Chawner. And I go, that guy raced in Holland. That guy is a two-time Olympian. I have not met him. I'm going to call him tonight and see if he knows of any place I can stay when I get off the plane in, in Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> Love the now, preparedness. Critical decision. Yeah. I call Dave and... And he says to me, you know, where are you going and how many miles do you have in your legs and how much racing experience do you have? And he said, you know what? He said, you should cancel your flight, meet me in Central Park, come to Princeton, New Jersey, get a place to live, train with us. And then if you have any money left in June when you've got some racing in your legs and it's warmer, then go over there. But don't go now. You'll get your ass kicked. You'll come home. You'll never ride a bike again. Oh, wow. And I just said, you know, I'm going there to race a bike. I'm not going there as a backpacker uh, to smoke dope and walk around Europe. I'm (laughs) going there to learn how to race a bike. I better do what he says. Even though I told all my friends in Sugarbush, I'm off to Europe. I'm off to Europe. I'll see you later. Now I'm going to New Jersey. (laughs) Culture shock. You know, and when you're working the, when you're working in Sugarbush, you wait tables on people from New Jersey all winter. You hate those people, right? <laughs> so now I'm going there, and all I can remember is New Jersey is the New Jersey Turnpike and oil refineries and traffic, and I'm going there instead of Belgium. But I did. I, I followed his advice. It was a critical point in my whole career. I, he's absolutely right. I would have gotten my ass kicked. I would have come home and never rid, ridden a bike again. And uh, I moved to Princeton. I met the godfather, the patron, Fred Kuhn, at the bike shop, and an Englishman worked the bike shop, and they ran this club like a, a, like a little Dutch or English bike club, <clears throat> and they looked at me and said, get a haircut, get a job, and we'll see if we can help you out, and I just earned my keep. I got a rooming house. I showed up every day to do my miles, and I started riding, and I started writing down the names of the guys that were on just the Century Road Club team and saying, these are the guys I got to somehow beat. Uh, and, I, you know, and I just lived like a monk. My only purpose in life was to train and get good and make the, make the A team on that club team. And it paid off. Yeah. You know, I, I have the training diaries to this day. I just did my homework. You know, it's just a question of surrounding yourself with those that are better than you and learning from them. And uh, that was the best place to be. So what was the experience like with the Tour of Ireland, being the first team over there? How did First of all, I know that Phil Liggett was involved in getting you guys over there. Describe that process and describe what the Tour of Ireland was like for you guys as an American team. Well, you know, it, it was quite a process. I, I didn't even know that we were eligible, that our club was going to get an invite. You know, I mean, I was just not privy to that type of information. So uh, I rode that stage race, the Tour de l'Est in Canada. And, uh, and I, I was an alternate. I worked my way up to like the A team. It was a six man team. I was an alternate. A couple of guys couldn't go and I got the slot and I was there and I was surrounded by, you know, all these guys were former Olympians or had ridden in European rate, you know, ridden in uh, international competitions. They were experienced, the best riders. And I was like the new guy on the team, but I finished the race. I got, I got to, I got to protect them. I got to be known as a dependable guy. We went out to the national championships. Uh, I helped. I helped our guys. We we did well, and I was like the fourth guy on the team to finish. We get back to the dorm in Milwaukee after the race, and Fred Kuhn, the, the patron, comes up to me and he says, "Hey, you're the fourth guy on the team to finish. 
you're going to the tour of Ireland. And I, you know, I'm going like last year at this time, if you look in my little training diary, I was in the middle of crossing over the Wisconsin border all by myself with my pannier bags. And one year later, I'm packing my bags to go to the tour of Ireland. Oh, my God. And what an experience that had to have been. I can just I can't even fathom what that had to have yeah, been like. Man, for it was a mind boggler. And we moved, you know, I, I, I was with John Alice, who was a who at that point was a he'd been on the 64, 68 and the 72 Olympic teams. Here was a guy uh, that I write about in the book uh, that was winning amateur classics in France in, the, in, in 1964 and 65, uh, a legend beyond belief. Uh, I go with him to his house in Boston and, and we train for about 10 days. John Howard comes in, uh, you know, Raleigh gets us all geared up. We were fully sponsored, supported, they took us out to dinner and put us on the plane, and we get off the plane. And, and of course, we, we got a lot of publicity because we were the first fully sponsored American team to ride, at, you know, an organized stage race to be fully sponsored in Europe. And uh, uh, even though it wasn't a real big-time race at the time, it was still had international flavor. And, uh, you know, Phil Liggett wanted to meet us. And he had ridden, you know, he had his own race called the Milk Race, which yeah. was one of the premier amateur stage races in the world at the time. And he was the commissar for this race. He'd seen individual American riders. You know, he had seen Mike Neal. He had seen other guys on, on individual efforts to ride his race and never finish. And so uh, he came over and bought us, had us over for breakfast. And uh, he was asking us all kinds of questions. And I was just blown away. I didn't even know who he was at the time. He, you know, he, America, the Tour de France wasn't televised in America at yeah. the time. So we didn't, you know, we knew who he was in the respect that he was the, the milk race uh, director and it was his race. But, the, you know, there was a Dutch team there, a French team there, all, all these English teams. And, you know, they weren't in us much heat. And, uh, and they gave us a, an ex-pro from England as a, as a, a manager. And he made all of us wear a pump and a spare. <laughs> now, you know, John Howard and John Alice were not used to, I mean, Alice would wear a pump and a spare. He wouldn't even think twice about it. But Howie was a rock star. You know, he, he, here's a guy who had won. I mean, here's, here's a little bit of history. He had won the Pan American Road Race in Columbia in 1971. Okay. I mean, that is mind-boggling yeah. that, he, that an American team went there in 71 where it's the national pastime, the Pan Am Games, and how he wins it. And, and Liggett was asking him all kinds of questions that he just wasn't used to getting. And, uh, and you know, after, after the first stage, this manager looked at those two guys and said, you guys don't have to wear a pump and a spare anymore, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so how he goes on, I mean, every day was brutally fast. Uh, I was doing okay, but I was struggling. Um, you know, I had a few days where I was off the back, uh, but then I started getting stronger. I was able to help the team, and um, and at one stage, which you may have seen on the video, you know, yeah. I got in a break. I closed the gap, and if I was any smarter, I mean, oh, here I was. You know, I could have won the stage, but I wasn't wasn't smart enough to figure it out, and I got third in the stage. Got the most aggressive rider, won some premiums. And, uh, you know, Howie got third overall, Alice got fifth overall, and Phil Liggett was like, holy shit, you know, you guys, uh, I'm going to send a letter to your federation, I want you to come to the milk race next year. So that was where it all began, because I remember back when Matt Eaton was the first U.S. winner of that race, if I'm not mistaken. 
Yeah, and you guys were the first years ones. Later, yeah. You guys are the first ones invited to the darn thing. Yeah. What kind of a reaction was there back in the states? You guys are achieving some of these incredible things, and was there any type of a of a reaction or, or positive press or anything like that? I can only imagine cycling not, of course, being at the level it is now. What kind of a reaction was there when you guys came back? Well, you know, it, there isn't the internet, there isn't TV. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, there's one publication in the United States. Uh, in fact, Howard and I and and John Alice went from from Ireland. We went directly to Spain to ride the world's championships. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And, uh, you know, I, I'm with the two greatest climbers of all time. I mean, we're talking five Olympic games between the two of them and, and me, the former hippie who rode across America, right? <laughs> And we're in Barcelona, and you know, customs, everything's different. We have a breakfast that's continental. I don't, I don't even hardly know what that is, but it's not enough food. <laughs> and we got to climb like six miles just to get out of Barcelona with these two guys. And then we stop somewhere to eat. So I'm training with them for like a week, and then the rest of the American team shows up, and they knew all about our success. And they were they were impressed. Akowitz and Mike Neal and these guys were riding the track. They knew about it. They were pretty impressed as much as they couldn't quite believe it they were impressed but when we got home uh you know it was it 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 took a while for the word to filter out and that video that you got was originally a 16 millimeter film yes and, and raleigh got like six of those reels and sent them out to their best bike clubs and and bike shops around the country and that reel was shown at bike club meetings and gatherings all around the country. And that's how the word got out over the period of the next year. Virtually everybody in America knew that we had, we had broken the ice, but it was, a, it took about a year for the word to really get out. And what, a, by the way, the video is, is absolutely amazing. And I'm going to want to, I don't know if the people can still obtain copies of that, but it, what a, what a great classic footage we're looking at there and to see the race as it unfolds there and, and, that was that was the way it was fed to people back then, and we take for granted all the things that are happening now. Immediate results, um, but w- what a really cool film! So I hope that's that's out there and that's available. I don't know if it is or not. I, I have probably the only DVD with that on it, and uh, you know I'm I'm thinking about offering it uh, uh, online with my book, you know, as an incentive yeah. to buy the book and get the DVD because it is a historical piece for sure. Absolutely. Well, let's go to the book. What a perfect time to do that. The Jersey Project is the name of the book. Um, and 
first of all, I want to find out how this idea and this concept came to be. Where did you guys come up with this? Um, and then we'll get into some more of the details of what's going on. Well, you know, pretty much the introduction is where I explain it quickly. I've been going, I had met with Rini Walkman's a uh, famous, you know, Dutch cyclist in 1978 when I was at the Tour de l'Avenir with the U.S. team, and we became instant friends. And uh, and here it is, like 35 years later, I'm 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 going over to watch the Tour de France. I'm bringing my my 11 year old son with me. The tour starts in Rotterdam. I know Rini has all the connections to get us VIP passes because he's won stages in the tour. He's protected Merckx. He's a legend in in his own right, and he was responsible for for the tour getting the. Uh, getting the start in Rotterdam. So we go over there. We have a phenomenal time. Uh, when the race dies down and leaves town, Rini and I sit down, and he shows me this book. And it's all in Dutch, and it's that whole second half of this book, The Jersey Project. Yeah. And I'm looking through it, and I'm sitting there with Rini in a cafe, and I'm looking at the jerseys, and I'm getting chills. I mean, these are our gods. These are the legends that we grew up idolizing, and all these jerseys are giving me flashbacks. And I and I just look at Rini and I go, oh my God! I, I the impact is over overwhelming for me. And he looks at me and he and he's got a sense of pride in his face. And this is a tough old Dutchman. And he just says, you know, do you want the rights to this book for for the English translation? And I I just was overwhelmed. And I said, well, of course. And that's that's so it was it was based on a good friend of his jersey collection, Hank Toons, been collecting jerseys for about 35 years. And the, and the book was based on his collection, and it was all in Dutch, and I got the rights to it. Came home, and with my business partner and good friend Jerry Dunn, we came up with a way to translate it and add an American chapter to it. And what a great chapter that was. I was going to ask, my next question was going to be asked, where did these jerseys come from? Because I'm the same way. I started... Well, quite a bit later, but I started racing in 1981, and just seeing some of the jerseys that I experienced um, is has just been, it's, I don't know, it seems not to be melodramatic, it almost seems like an emotional piece to look through all this and to um, and to appreciate all, all that, that goes into this, both European and domestic, um, just absolute <laughs> just stunning photos and all the stuff you guys had found. Were the American-based jerseys, were they tough to track down, or was this something you could contact the riders directly? Well, that's what we had to do. We had to come up with a formula, like, how are we going to do this? You know, one of the things, I'm still pretty much uh, uh, in contact with a lot of people from back in our 70s era. I'm kind of, I've developed a little reputation of a historian for that era, you know, I'm not a complete historian on the whole sport. I don't claim to be, but on on the 70s into the 80s era, I'm pretty much uh, in contact with a lot of the guys from that era, and was and was very active in that time frame. So, we first of all we decided, well, we can't just do every jersey. Why don't we just do the jerseys from your era? Why don't we just take a segment? That's the era where they were wool, and we can show the progression. And you and, and, and my partner says, and it's time that the era of the 70s, it's time that that story was told. Everybody and nowadays can almost can remember Greg LeMond or they know of Greg LeMond. If you go any further back than Greg, the, the, the stumbling block, uh, the wall stops. The information seems to stop that when the 7-Eleven team was formed. 
I agree completely. Yeah. Oh, and so your era, which was the momentum that built and and really projected everything into the 80s and 90s, that story's never been told. Why don't we stick with that? And that's the era that you come from. And if we stay with the jerseys and tell the story through the jerseys, then we won't be telling the story of just my career. We'll be telling the story of the whole era. And so we, we, we got that figured out, and then we said, okay, you got to go find these guys, and you can't get in, you can't get involved with them. You got to email them. You got to come up with a formula, and you got to say, gentlemen, I'm putting together a book, da 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 da, da and I need you to go into your basement, find your jerseys, get them out, and photograph them, and send me the photographs. I don't want the jerseys because I didn't want to get involved with having all everybody send me jerseys. Oh God, no! So all of this took time to come up with that formula, and then we just started approaching people. And then who do we approach? Well, the Dutch, the the Kastrui, the Dutch book. The beauty of it is it, it's all about the water carriers, the yeah. workers, the domestiques, the guys that were a pro for, for two years and then went back to the farm. And it's not all about the rock stars, although there are plenty of them in there. And we wanted to stick with that formula. Well, I wanted to call guys that raced continuously up and down the seaboard and helped move the sport forward that maybe necessarily never traveled outside the United States, never was on a U.S. team. The workhorses of the era, those are the guys I wanted to, I wanted to make sure got a call or got an email from me. And that's, that's how I started. And, um, and a lot of guys... Um, jumped on it a lot of them had to be reminded but i couldn't get into chasing guys but that was the thing i started collecting and uh and and they started coming in photographs and all of a sudden guys would go in their basements and they would they would get them out and they would follow the instructions with the camera and then they would send me these gorgeous jerseys with these histories of when they rode them and what other riders wore them and I would get all this love, you know, and then I would turn around and I'd say, gee, I really need this guy's jersey. Well, this guy uh, didn't take the time to, to send me his jerseys. Yeah. But I kept getting it. And wherever they came from, that's the direction I went with. And uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience. It just kind of seems like it takes on a life of its own. And I think it's, it's, it's almost as the closest thing you can get to a history documentary of the sport and, and the colors. And I, you know, I know I'm romanticizing myself a little bit too much, but the, the colors and the, the actual different designs of the jerseys throughout the years, it, it really tells a story. And I think it's an integral part of an understanding the sport and experiencing that history. Yeah, these are the these are the rep, these are the archival pieces, the fabric that held us all together, you know, and and uh, as as the times change and as you look at the chapters in that section, you see well the sponsors change, the racing changed, that you know uh, the fabric changed, yeah. uh, the circuit changed, you know, uh, racing got faster, racing got bigger, and so forth and so on, and 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 uh, and it's a good uh, a good medium to explain it all. So in your years of being racing, uh, of being a racer and being around the sport of cycling, what do you consider to have been or to be the best time to be a cyclist? I mean, was it in the 70s when the U.S. was still, for lack of a better word, in, it, in its infancy and in, in developing itself as a global? Was it in the 80s when things started to really explode with Le Mans? Was it in the 90s or was it in the, in the 2000s where we're experiencing now? You know, it's all good. You know, I mean, I, I feel fortunate that uh, I got to pioneer and live the life that I lived and make the contacts I did uh, and ride that wave. And, you know, any time is a good time to be on the bike. I mean, 
what I learned about the guys that I thought I knew very well, you know, I learned that they had careers beyond any scope of imagination I may have had about them. I mean, guys I traveled with and raced with, and then I got off the train and started coaching grassroots. They raced maybe four or five years longer than I did, and I didn't realize how incredible their careers were and how much they traveled, and uh, and everybody benefited. And, uh, and you know, the 80s were extremely fast. Yeah. You know, it, it, that, that 84 Olympics, because we missed 80, uh, the 80s were an extremely fast time to be a bike racer. There was a lot of quality guys out there that were on the fringes of making a national team. It was a very competitive time in the 80s. And, uh, you know, any time's a good time. Right now, it's like it's open to the public. I mean, it's, you know, it's got so much momentum and so much participation, and the Grand Fondo thing is really taking off, which is drawing in, you know, your recreational guy who, who doesn't race necessarily. It's got so much momentum now that, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty much unstoppable. What are your th- and so now that you have those thoughts on the current state of the sport, obviously you know it, I don't want to always go to this topic, but we are in sort of a of a of a of a we're on the fence in terms of where we could potentially take this. We've had some bad news to the sport recently. Um, what are your thoughts? Are we getting better? Do you experience um, anything anything good coming out of the sport? This Grand Fondo thing happening here and and. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, of course, I've had mixed emotions, and, yeah. and you know, I, I know the sport. Inter- I was, I was, I sent a note to uh, Neil Rogers today, and I just said, you know, it, it's amazing. Uh, I've been sitting back watching the the comments, you know, yeah. online, you know, and all the comments and all the all the criticism and all the people that are fired up, and I realize the sport is so big now. But I also realize that a lot of these people that have been into the sport, and I mean, they're into it, um, for maybe the last five or even ten years, really don't know the history of the sport. And because they don't know the history and who came before them and what the traditions of the sport are, they were oblivious to, uh, to this aspect of the sport. And so it's been, it's been real upsetting to them, but the momentum is now so big and so open and this happened so long ago that I'm fortunate enough to spend time with guys like Timmy Dugan and, and, and Lizzie Stevens a yeah. couple of times a year and, and Teddy King and, and, and uh, you know, and, and Jeremy Powers. And I get to I get to hang out with some of these up and coming young pros. And like Timmy said, we've already hit the reset button and, and I'm closely aligned with, you know, the uh, the junior development program and the under 23 program. And I stay in touch with those folks. And that little that little system, uh, feeder system, has been working impeccably and has never shown a positive. And uh, and as a result, we already have kids lined up in the peloton today that are capable of winning a major classic and the Tour de France. So we've already moved beyond that. And uh, I see it as, uh, you know, I, I think we're almost over it. It's, it's happened that quickly. That is so nice here. We talk at length about junior development on this program and the, and the importance of it and, and being where we are perhaps maybe a little separated from what's happening with the governing bodies. It's hard to know what kind of emphasis is being put into those programs, and it's nice to hear from somebody who has some involvement in that that it is happening, that it is a part of the sport. Oh, yeah, it's, it is. And, uh, you know, it's a very successful program. and has been for some time now. Oh, great. 
Hey, now, uh, talking about some of the technologies that happened in, throughout the years, is there any, throughout your career and throughout the, especially the entries in the Jersey Project, we've seen just things in terms of clothing manufacturers and designs and fabrics in use. Do you consider any specific technologies to be ha- to have been truly revolutionary within the sport? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, there's a few key, you know, the clipless pedal and, yeah. you know, and, and for me personally, you know, I was, I was the swan year, um, uh, for the Tour de l'Avenir, the first time we ever got invited in 78. And, uh, and we went with seven guys and then, uh, we, we finished two and, and Peter Stetna's father was one of them, Dale, yeah. he finished 21st. And, and then I was fortunate enough to go back the next year with a much bigger and better and stronger team and a lot more experience myself and with George Mount. And that's when Lycra came out of Switzerland with Assos. <laughs> Okay, and George bought that one-piece bib, and he was flashing at me, and he was busting my chops because <laughs> he and Pringle and all the boys bought them, and they cost 110 bucks even then. Oh man, yeah, I mean, but you don't forget—you could wear this thing every day for like eight months. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these were bulletproof. Okay? okay, and and he kept pulling up his jersey and showing me the bib and saying, "Bike guy, you retired too soon," you know, <laughs> and. I just said, you know, I am. I was pissed. I got to say, I was pissed because shorts and stage races were, you know, I mean, there was times I had to wear two pairs of shorts. My butt was so sore. <laughs> but um, And washing them out. They just didn't dry, you yeah. know, and they had real chamois. So, you know, they didn't get in the sunlight. They didn't kill the bacteria. You know, I mean, this was, you know. So, yeah, that, that killed me as, in relating to that. When I saw those bibs, I just said, that's it. So I bought two pair and I'm rolling around Boulder, Colorado in 1979, and I am the only guy in Boulder with bib like bib shorts on. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, that, that sounds like a good technological change. I was never in the wool shorts days. I, I still have several wool, jer- wool jerseys lying around that I don't know if I'm going to fit into anymore, but... Uh, but that I, I never had to do shorts, so that's that's a tough one. I do still, have, however, have an old bike built up with Modolo brakes and the old style cable routing. So uh, you know, I, cool. I have to admit, I hold on to that stuff. Bike rides, yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know about that. I might just leave it hanging up on the wall. Hey, yeah. yeah. So in in your in your career, what do you consider your greatest moment? Well, you know, I mean. The Tour of Ireland, getting third in that stage. You know, I mean. It, and being able to see it on video and, and, you know, and of course everybody busted my balls for losing that sprint, you know, <laughs> um, including Pat McQuaid and all the McQuaid brothers, you know, I mean, I see them to this day and they're there. Hey, Billy, Patty Doran sends his best. You oh, know? come like, on. <laughs> oh yeah. I see McQuaid I, years ago before he was in the, on the hot seat, I'd see him at Perry Roubaix in the VIP section, walking in in the morning, you know, and everybody's drinking champagne at 9 a.m. before the start, and, and he'd be there with his brothers and Liggett, and they'd just be pointing and giggling at me when I walked in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Old bike riders, we don't forget that stuff. But that was a, that was a big day, and finishing was big. Um, you know, uh, I had some great moments uh, at the Tour of Newfoundland, uh, riding for Butch Martin on his team and, and protecting Chawner. Uh, you know, the guy that gave me that phone call and told me not to go to Europe. And, and then uh, two years later, I'm his domestique in the in the tour of Newfoundland. He's in third place. Uh, he, he has a cracked stem at the starting line. He, we very discreetly 
exchange bikes, but everybody, so no one will notice that he's riding our spare bike, which doesn't fit him real well, has different <laughs> toe clips. And, uh, you know, my boss, Butch, says, you stay right next to Dave today. You know, you don't let him out of your sight. And Dave punctures, all right? And the whole peloton knows he's in third. He punctures, and they go right to single file. All the Canadians, the English guys, they, they bring the speed up to like 30. And I have to drop off the back of the field and all the way through the cars, and I pick up Dave, and he says, come on, bike guy, let's go. And I start the hammer down, and I bring him all the way up through the cars. And it was so cool because all the coaches and all the other team cars were watching me drift back for Dave. And then they watched me come back up through the cars and bring him all the way up to the front of the bunch and say, get in here, buddy. Yeah. And then I went back and hung on for the rest of the day. So that's a, that's a moment that I'll never forget right there. Wow. Okay. So what, what, what my listeners are going to understand is that you've got a heck of a history. You've been around, you know, you just, I mean, you just dropped some names that would probably have most of my listeners jaws on the floor. Um, you've got a great history and this book is a part of that history. Um, how has your reception been? How's, how's things been going in terms of the Jersey project and what its reception has been like? Well, it's been, it's been phenomenal, really. I showed up at the 2000, uh, I guess it was 11, uh, a year and a half ago at the, at the bike show and Bill Strickland at Bicycling gave me a review I, before I even got there. He said, this is the coolest thing at Interbike. And he put it online at the web page. So the launch was, uh, you know, underground launch. I was at Demjan's Squadra booth because uh, Demjan was one of my kids with Lamont when I was coaching. Oh, wow. He said, you got a spot in my booth. You can sell your book there. And the reception was very good. And, you know... Uh, I got nothing but great reviews. Uh, sales slowed down a little bit this past six months, um, but recently I've shipped a bunch of them back over to Europe, and Competitive Cyclist has bought some. And you know, I haven't penetrated the marketplace, but I've still sold about three or four thousand books in a, in, a, in a year's time. So let's sell it. Who would who would you say this is best suited for? Is this for the diehard in the wool cyclist, or is this for a new kid? Is this something that everybody's going to get something out of, whether they've straddled the top two for a year or? 30 years i think so i think it's colorful it's got a history to it uh every graphic designer and every major clothing company uh from castelli to you know to, to santini to De marche in italy has a copy of this book in their office in italy i mean pearl Izumi, you go into any major clothing but you name it they're this book is in their in their office for graphic design <laughs> but as far as a, a recreational cyclist anybody that wants to know anything about the sport it's a great coffee table book with some great history to it, and uh, I think the audience is very broad. Right on. Where can listeners find it? Where can my listeners tune in right now while they're listening? Uh, you know, it's available. It's available at the the jerseyproject.com. I ship them out myself. It's also on xlsports.com, and Competitive Cyclist is going to put it up very soon. It's on Amazon, but not for very much longer. I would not. I'm not happy with Amazon, so I'm taking it off Amazon. And it depends on what part of the country you're in, but I list the bike shops it's available in on the, se on the second page of my website, thejerseyproject.com. There we can find it. Now, okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. If you had to pick, I'll give you two. If you had to pick two jerseys from the book that were your personal favorites of all time and you cannot pick your Raleigh jersey. No, I already have a couple of those jerseys. Uh, <laughs> I, I already... Uh, I got the book in my hands now, and it's it's Walk Walkman's <laughs> 
jersey and uh it's a plain jersey on i forget what page i'm gonna thumb through here i got mine right here <laughs> yeah it's plain jersey and it's has no sponsors on it. it's got a collar that is my favorite jersey okay so you're going retro you're you're back in the in the true classic yeah, days. I'm a wool guy but that's a beautiful jersey even if that was not in wool that would be a very nice jersey okay pockets See. on the fronts and, and collars and the other jersey, I love Le Mans jersey, his uh, combined his combined jersey where they had, you know, the points, the mountains, yeah. and everything all in one jersey. I think that's outstanding. The category that no longer exists. Right. It was basically given to the second place guy overall because I think they were usually the ones who were in that category. Right. So, I mean, I, it's tough to pick them out, but I like the Elro Snacks. Uh, you know, I, I just, I continually thumb through this and, uh, and, um, <laughs> And I'm always amazed at finding another jersey in somebody else's name underneath there that I hadn't yeah. seen before. I just got a Miko Mico Mercier jersey myself. My father gave it to me, an old classic wool one. That one's going to go pressed up and framed in the studio here. Yeah, and guys go through it, and they and even if they've only been riding a few years, they go, oh, I used to have that, or I've seen that one, or I want to buy that one, or you know, so forth and so on. So it's it's a, it's an excellent uh, point of reference. Yeah, and just to let everybody know, I sat down with my 13-year-old kid the other day, and he wanted to know all about him. So I was able to actually break off into stories. He might have got a little bored with me after a while because I was telling too many stories. But, uh, yeah, when Dad starts crying, it's time to give it up. Yeah, my 14-year-old's in the other room going, oh, my God, I've heard this all so much. <laughs> so, so what else keeps the bike guy busy? First of all, how many bikes you got in the house, and what else are you keeping doing with your time? Uh, you know, we've, we've sold a few here and there. I think we've probably got about eight or ten bikes around the house, including my son's couple of BMX bikes and some mountain bikes. And, uh, you know, I clean house every now and then. But uh, I've been doing some consulting. I wor I've been working for VeloNation.com for about a year and a half. No, the and so I'm doing their global sales for them, and I'm about ready to wrap that up and, and move on to something else. I'm working on a point-to-point -point, uh, professional road race uh, from Newport, Rhode Island to Mystic, Connecticut. Been working on that for two years, and we're very close to a title sponsor on that, and that's scheduled for next September. And, uh, uh, and I also, uh, so there's Velo Nation, the book. Uh, the bike race, and uh, I drive a tractor trailer about four months a year for a friend of mine who has a perennial plant farm, and that's about ready to kick in where I'll be driving 48, 50 hours a week. Oh, wow. God, well, you still talk to any of the Raleigh boys? I had John Howard on about a year ago. We we're, we actually have another reunion scheduled this summer uh, in August up in New Hampshire at John Alice's farm where he's retired to. So there'll be about 13 or 14 of us getting back together again for, uh, for some good times. And uh, our, one of the guys is a French chef, Flip. Is, he was on the 72 Olympic team. And Flip is a Sausalito guy. And when I was out riding with him this September, uh, I said, Flip, you got to cook for us. I said, everybody's dying for one of your meals again. He said, well, you know, let's, let's do it at Alice's house, and uh, I'll cook for you guys. So... That's going to be a very sweet time, and uh, in August we're getting together again. Well, glad to see you're keeping it humble and simple. <laughs> man, that's that's a reunion. Man, my team gets together, and we're lucky if somebody buys a pitcher of beer. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you get you know you get you get a little wiser with age as time, you know. Yeah. But we'll we'll still. I mean, some of the guys are still at race weight. 
And believe me, there will be, we'll all, we're all in our 60s, some of us in our late 60s. Uh, there will be a Hammerfest, believe me. <laughs> well, first of all, everybody, the book is called The Jersey Project, the site where you can obtain it. Go over to thejerseyproject.com. Um, this is, this is going to be something that will, it, I, I, I use the term coffee table book because you want to have it out all the time. If you have somebody who's experienced anything within the sport, they're going to open this and they're, the stories are going to just start to flow out of them. No alcohol required. Uh, um, great work on that, Bill. And, and I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and, and telling us about your story and telling us about the book. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I enjoyed it. Take care. Good. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.